This is a Federal News Network podcast. A clever idea to use magnetic nanoparticles to capture valuable materials from brine. Sounds arcane, but it's blossomed into new projects that could help make the U.S. a producer, and not just a consumer, of critical minerals used in electronics and energy production. One planned pilot project co-funded with industry by the Energy Department's Office of Fossil Energy, is in the works right now at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. For more, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with lab fellow Pete McGrail. Well, actually, most of the lithium comes from water. Huh. Uh, brine solutions from, from, uh, uh, from South America, so Chile, uh, Argentina. So uh, that's primarily where it comes, although there are some, some solid uh, mineral extraction uh, projects in Australia, China, etc. And so what is the idea behind uh, you, this magnetic uh, nanoparticles approach um, and the idea of pulling, I guess, pulling the materials out of the water through a more confined process, it seems? Yeah, because c- conventional technology, you, you flow these uh, brine solutions or evaporate them. That's the main way it's done today. You evaporate the water in these very massive uh, evaporation ponds, and then precipitate the salts. So that water is lost, and that's having impacts uh, in uh, South America, uh, for example. So what we do is uh, flow this water through an extraction system, uh, which uses nanoparticles, uh, and it makes it much more efficient, uh, cost-effective, uh, to do the extraction, and we don't lose any of the water. Uh, the water just gets... Uh, recycled back underground. So we don't have the the environmental impacts that uh, current uh, practices do. And can you tell me a little bit about the, the core particle technology and what, what that entails and also, um, you know, who contributed to uh, creating it and, and whatnot? <laughs> yeah, I can tell you some things about it. Of course, some of the, the non-proprietary uh, information. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> But uh, basically, uh, the idea here is really uh, quite, quite simple in the, in the sense that uh, what we're doing is taking these nanoparticles, uh, we put some chemical compounds, they're called ligands, uh, on the surface. And what we're doing is introducing those particles into the brine solution as it's coming uh, up from, from underground. Uh, from whatever source that may be, and and then we let those particles uh, interact at the molecular level uh, with the lithium that's present in small concentrations in the in the solution. So the special chemistry here is that uh, we engineer uh, the particles so that they're very selective to pull the lithium out of out of these brine solutions, which have much, much higher, I mean, many orders of magnitude higher concentrations of other elements in solution that we're not interested in. So, you know, things like sodium and potassium. Uh, in some cases, it's uh, other elements like manganese, which are real problems in conventional uh, technologies. So what the, the overall process concept is, is, so taking these particles now that are very tiny, uh, let them interact with the brine, pull the lithium out, and then once that's happened, uh, we pass them through a magnet. So they're magnetically susceptible, so they're magnetic, and we can pull them out of the, the solution uh, with a magnetic extraction system. 
and then do the regeneration process. So now we've concentrated the lithium uh, in these particles and we can extract that and uh, do the rest of the process uh, steps, which uh, is purification mainly uh, to provide uh, battery grade uh, lithium. And then that uh, brine solution, which is now has the lithium has been depleted, uh, but is otherwise unaffected, can get reinjected back underground. And then our particles, uh, which uh, then have the lithium removed and then are regenerated, go right back to the top of the, uh, the process and, and get uh, get recycled and, and reused over and over and over again. So, yeah, so it seems yeah. as if there's no wastewater process whatsoever, like you see in other mining uh, processes. Uh, is that true? You can just get, put it right back in the ocean or hole or wherever you're getting the water from? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that, that's exactly right. So we 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 just w- want to make sure we can uh, take that water solution, uh, brine solution, typically, and have that get reinjected uh, back underground, uh, so that uh, we don't have these uh, regional impacts uh, on groundwater systems that are occurring uh, in uh, areas like uh, so. You know, Chile is a, a good example. So the, the major lithium producing region is, is called the Atacama. It's actually one of the driest areas on the on the planet. Uh, and yet uh, what companies are doing uh, today is extracting very large volumes of, of water underground uh, from from this region and putting it in these these massive evaporation ponds. Uh, and letting that all that water get evaporated off into the atmosphere and and, and lost. Uh, so we so the Chilean government is is trying to to limit any further uh, applications of that kind of uh, uh, nascent technology. And uh, so we think uh, our our system uh, much more economical, much faster, and certainly much more environmentally uh, benign uh, can have. Uh, great uh, applications for future production in countries like uh, Chile, but also here in the U.S. where we have similar kinds of issues uh, where these uh, brine solutions are being produced. And is the technology in the utilization stage yet, or is it still experimental on a small scale? What's the uh, status of it? Right. So we're, we're still at small scale in, in laboratory where we're, we're testing uh, different formulations uh, for uh, these these ligands, uh, these chemical compounds that we're using to extract the lithium. So we're still at that that stage, uh, but we do a pretty good job in, in the lab in terms of uh, taking these materials. Uh, we put them through the whole process through a magnetic separator, uh, pull pull the lithium out, uh, recycle them, regenerate them. You know, have a look at the you know, basically the entire process from start to finish. Uh, so we're pretty confident. I mean, there's always issues in taking technology from from lab scale up up to a commercial scale. But you know, we're doing the best we we can right now at the lab scale to make sure we understand you know all of the aspects of the process and then can move it uh, to a pilot scale uh, when we were uh, convinced and our industry partners are convinced that we're ready we're ready to do that. So is it like in science class when you're making your own slime and they have you, you know, drag a magnet in, into a pile of dirt and you pull out a bunch of little iron bits? Is that sort of what it looks like if we had a, a chance to zoom in on the process itself? 
<laughs> well, thank you, Eric, very much for bringing slime into the picture. <laughs> uh, but we're we're not particularly interested in in doing slime. But it is it is it is like a laboratory, uh, you know, experiment here. Uh, maybe a bit more sophisticated in that we're we're, we're trying to monitor all the processes involved um, uh, to to make sure we we can be confident in talking to uh, various companies and investors. You know about move, uh, scaling up a, a process, which is which is much more uh, costly, capital intensive to do compared to what we're doing in the laboratory. Understood, and that's a great segue for me to ask you to put your visionary hat on. If and when it gets large scale, what do you see? I mean, lithium is just being used more and more, and. Uh, everything. Uh, <laughs> what uh, what what could this change as far as uh, where we actually get our lithium from for making all those important things that we've all become accustomed to? Yeah, Eric, that's a great question. So maybe most people uh, don't understand right now, but uh, in, in terms of U.S. Uh, supply, uh, the the vast majority of, of the lithium that is used uh, for electric vehicles and battery storage, uh, your cell phone, all of it. That is coming from overseas locations. So uh, it's coming from the major producing regions we talked about. So in South America, uh, but producing the batteries is is mainly being done in, in China right now. So the whole idea here is to say, well, you know, we have some uh, very important domestic u.s domestic resources uh, for lithium that aren't being exploited you know at the moment so uh, these come from uh, different uh, places so we have some geothermal uh, areas for example in southern california uh, so these are geothermal uh, power plants normally and what happens in those power plants is that the brine solution comes up it's it's hot uh, of course to run a power plant but it comes up from the surface goes through the, the power plant, uh, the heat is extracted, and then the solution goes back underground. Well, think about this. There's thousands of gallons a minute of brine solution that's that's coming up from uh, those locations. Often it will have several hundred parts per million of lithium in solution, which can amount to actually a very large quantity of lithium if we can extract it in, in that situation uh, economically and not affect the power plant, et cetera. So we think our our technology uh, can apply in that in that circumstance. The one other situation domestically that looks important to us is oil and gas production. So again, a lot of people may not realize uh, this fact, but uh, in terms of oil production, it's actually a water producing uh, operation. Uh, there's, there's normally on the order of even of 10 to even 100 barrels of water that are produced when we're producing a barrel of oil. And it turns out that in, in a lot of situations uh, in producing oil and gas here in the U.S., uh, we have lithium that is present in, in those solutions. Uh, so uh, our calculations show that if we could get just a quarter of the lithium that's in the uh, the water that's produced as a as a consequence, it's called produced water in the oil and gas industry. If we could get just a quarter of that, we could actually match the current world market for lithium production in in the U.S. Uh, so these are very important currently unexploited resources uh, for lithium. 
and we think new technologies like you know the one we're talking about that uh, we're working on here at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory is a, is a way to economically now uh, provide those uh, lithium resources uh, that we really need for the uh, renewable energy economy here in the in the U.S. Pete McGrail is laboratory fellow at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all but, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And And I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that that what we say and do especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted 
they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do, where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the Unemployment Office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating, Um, you know, from historical to current current times. I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so. I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people ask me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. 
By donating plasma at a Griffles Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.